Welcome to SLU Law Summation, presenting brief looks at legal matters that matter to you by St. Louis University School of Law, located in the heart of downtown St. Louis. From contract negotiations to trademark protection, wage disputes and stadium deals, the practice of sports law spans across disciplines and interests. Each aspect has wide-ranging implications, especially here in St. Louis, as we navigate the prospects of a new stadium and a new sport. I'm Corey Dugas, and today we're joined by two distinguished alums and adjunct professors, Nick Brockmeyer and Garrett Brushhouse, who co-teach a course in sports law. Thank you for joining us today, guys. It's our pleasure. Thanks for having us. First, can you talk a little bit about sports law and tell us what that generally entails? So, in my opinion, sports law is a um, kind of a newer section of law that is expanding in many schools, undergrad and law schools are uh, focusing more on it. But sports law, simply put to me, is um, it's called sports law, but it's basically taking every different subdivision of law or, or types of law school classes you would have and just applying them to sports. Would you agree? Yeah, I'd agree with that. It's, it's really a combination of, of just about everything you would learn in law school. Um, there's going to be labor law that you're going to be learning. There's going to be contract law. There's going to be property issues. There's really a wide range of issues that, that you face when you're talking about sports law. And uh, as Nick alluded to, it's, it's kind of a hot, uh, hot area of law right now that a lot of schools are, are adding in, in their uh, curriculum. And, um, you know, we're, we, we always have a lot of fun teaching it. So you teach the course here, but this isn't your day job. So can you tell us a little bit about what both of you do? I guess I'll go with this. Um, we teach sports law here at SLU Law School. We also teach sports law together at SLU Undergrad. <clears throat> which is quite uh, different and the same. Um, but to give you a little background, I uh, graduated from SLU Law in 2004. I'm a lawyer and uh, president and founder of Platinum Sports and Entertainment Management out of St. Louis. So my agency primarily represents uh, pro baseball players. We represent about 50 pro baseball players at any given time. And Garrett and I have a uh, kind of a funny background. We went. I grew up in a town of 400 people. I graduated with 12 people in Southeast wow. Missouri. <laughs> And Garrett grew up in the town right next to mine with how many people? It's about 1,200, is it? So like Booming metropolis. <laughs> <laughs> so Garrett and I knew each other in the high school time frame. Um, we kind of, he went off to Mizzou. I uh, went to SLU Law School. I started my sports agency. And Garrett was a client of mine back when he played for the San Francisco Giants. He was drafted in the fifth round out of Mizzou. So Garrett was one of my uh, clients, and we, we were friends all along. Well, it, most pro baseball players um, either, or most pro minor league baseball players, the end of their career comes when they get released. Um, mm-hmm. And I always tell people, Garrett never got released. He just gave baseball so many years, and after so many years were up, he decided to call it quits. And um, he was second in the Giants organization the prior two years to Madison Bumgarner, who's won World Series yeah. and well-known player. So Garrett was still a really good pitcher. Um, he can describe maybe in more detail. He always says he was a right-hander that threw in like what the upper 80s, low 90s, which isn't going to cut it in today's baseball world. But he was a great pitcher. And through that, then Garrett, um, I'll go ahead and let you take over. You ended up at law school. Yeah. So after my, my playing career ended, uh, I went to law school here at SLU. And um, also Nick offered me the opportunity to work with him a little bit. And so since then, I've been doing some work with Nick. I've represented a few clients consistently. And, you know, he's, he's got a great little sports agency that uh, has a lot of local guys, but not just local guys. We, he, has, he has guys from all over the country, too. 
um, and he's also uh, expanded to other sports uh, a little bit as well. Um, I'm also a, an attorney and a lot of my litigation that I do focuses on, on sports as well. I represent um, a number of minor league baseball players in a wage and hour action that's the first of its kind that's really trying to increase the salaries of minor league baseball players. Most people don't realize that all minor league baseball players start out at $1,100 uh, per month and they're only paid wow. during the season. Uh, so you know, we're doing everything we can to, to try to increase those salaries. Uh, another thing I do is I represent a group of scouts um, in, a, in a wage action and involving the, the salaries paid to Major League Baseball scouts as well. Uh, so yeah, we, Nick and I work together quite a bit and uh, it's, it's great to, yeah, to teach. That's a really interesting and different backstory from what we hear most of the time on this <laughs> podcast. So it's great to hear that. So you mentioned that the students that are in your class, you're talking about a lot of different legal issues when you're teaching the course, property and other different things like that. So can you tell us a little bit about what the students are learning in, in your course here at the law school? So <clears throat> it may be if we're doing a week on contracts, we would obviously review sports contracts. So whether that may be an endorsement contract with a, between a player and Nike or their playing contract between them and their pro team. Um, so we just basically analyze contracts in the context of sports. Um, I could go on and on with different subjects. So say it's torts and negligence. Uh, we may show videos of uh, certain things happening on or off the field. And then we apply the uh, negligence principles that they learn in law school to how it applies to sports. I think the list kind of goes on where we're just applying normal legal concepts that they're learning here and applying them to sports. We also try to make it as, as skill-based as possible, too. You know, a couple things that I think are really neat that we do is we do a contract negotiation assignment uh, each time we teach uh, where students are really uh, placed in, in a situation where they actually have to negotiate a, a real contract. And for a lot of students, it's probably the first time that they've seen an actual contract, much less mm -hmm. negotiate one. Uh, you know, when you take your contract law class, you learn all the stuff about offer and consideration and all that, but you don't actually see what a modern-day contract looks like with all the different boilerplate clauses that it has in it. And then another example of something we do is uh, we do something called the mock winter meetings. Um, baseball, and this just ended, every, every early, Dece early December each year, Everybody in the baseball industry meets in one place, and a lot of trades happen uh, at what's called baseball's winter meetings. Uh, and so it's a really, really neat, neat thing where the agents are there, all the general managers of teams are there, the owners are there. And so we try to sort of uh, have a similar type of uh, winter meetings uh, that we do in class then too, where some people are designated as agents, some people are designated as general managers, and then there's a pool of free agent uh, baseball players, and there's a little like negotiation that goes on uh, between the, the, the students as general managers and as, as agents. That's really the kind of practical hands-on education that the students really seem to latch on to here. So I'm excited to hear that you guys are doing that with the sports law class. So you mentioned the, the wage disputes with minor league baseball that you're working on. What are some of the other issues in your field and, and cases that you're working on right now? Yes, yeah, so, so those are the two main cases that I'm working on. My, my work on behalf of the minor leaguers takes up, as you can imagine, a lot of a my lot. time. Mm -hmm. It's a, a nationwide class uh, that, that we're, we're representing, and it's uh, a big case out in the Northern District of California and in, in, uh, in San Francisco. Um, and then, yeah, another case I work on is on behalf of scouts. But a couple of the other really popular topics right now and really interesting topics to me 
um, are the efforts to try to gain compensation for NCAA athletes. That's been going on for a number of years now, um, particularly with the main focus being on uh, the, the high-end football and, and basketball players. You know, when you are at uh, the University of, of Alabama and they're playing for a national championship each year and making millions of dollars and, uh, and the NCAA is making millions of dollars off of them, there's a lot of people that don't think that that's fair, that uh, the, the football players themselves aren't making any money. Um, another thing I would, would say that is a hot topic is all the concussion litigation. Mm -hmm. There is more awareness now uh, of concussions than there ever has been in the past. Um, finally, we are getting to the point where there are more reasonable uh, concussion protocols put in place by the, the major sports institutions like the NFL and like the NHL. Uh, and the reason why is, is because of the litigation that, that, that took place. Without the litigation that, that took place, those concussion protocols would not be in place. Uh, so those are just a couple of examples of, of some of the uh, things that I think are more interesting going on right now. Nick might have a... a I was going to say, you always, like, uh, you always like to cover those two topics in class, and the other one that you always latch onto is the uh, FanDuel DraftKings mm -hmm. situation that is kind of an ongoing, the daily sports, daily fantasy sports uh, legal issues that is ever changing that Garrett usually touches on. So, a lot what are they working on with this? Yes. So, FanDuel and DraftKings are, um, as, as most people know, they're they're about the only two uh, daily fantasy markets out there. And so, in fact, they've they've actually just um, they've proposed merging uh, now, and of, and of course, there would only be. Uh, one uh, one company left after that, and anytime there's only one mm -hmm. company, you worry about monopolies. That uh, so that's that's something to, to keep an eye on as well. One other thing I wanted to touch on, and we're kind of going backwards, is you were talking about our class, and uh, Garrett and I, with our connections in the sports industry, this is unlike a lot of law school classes. We do two things uh, differently than a traditional class that I had 12 years ago when I was here. Uh, one is our class is very much. Um, I don't know how to describe this other than open as far as it's just an open conversation between us and mm -hmm. the students. We're just two guys and there's 20 students and, and we, we all just kind of talk about issues. But uh, the thing I wanted to touch on is we, with our connections in the sports industry, we bring in a ton of speakers to give them practical advice on what's really going on, what people are really doing. So we'll bring in NFL agents, NHL agents, um, MLB agents, a sports marketing guy from Coca-Cola, the assistant AD for SLU. I mean, the list goes on and on of different speakers we've brought in over the years, which I think the students really enjoy. Mm -hmm. so. Again, that touches on that practical application element that seems to be happening a lot in your sports law class. Right. So to switch gears a little bit, we've heard this week that Governor-elect Greitens opposes the public dollars um, that, are, that have been proposed to be used for the new Major League Soccer Stadium. So what what does this mean for the project as we've seen that popping up in St. Louis? I don't think it means anything immediately. Um, you know, the important thing to keep in mind here is at least they are putting this to a vote. You know, the, the residents of, of St. Louis, uh, I, I believe it's going to be in April, uh, are going to be able to go to the polls and they can decide for themselves whether there is, uh, whether there's going to be public funding for the soccer stadium or not. Um, this is in direct contrast to the situation that happened with the, recently, the, recently with the Rams where they were trying to force public funding uh, down the, the public's throat without them having any vote at all. Um, in some ways, it was a benefit probably that uh, the Rams did leave because that was going to be a lot of money 
for a second stadium that was going to be right next to the first stadium. Mm-hmm. We're still paying off those bonds. Um, but it, it from a public uh, from a public standpoint, public relations standpoint, it is a uh, setback a little bit for Governor Greitens to take that that stance. Um, it it is actually in contrast to what Governor Nixon is saying. He, and Governor Nixon's pointing out that hey, this is going to go to go to a vote, mm-hmm. uh, which is the right thing to do. So it doesn't mean anything immediately, but it is a little bit of a PR setback probably for the project. Mm-hmm. I did see that the. the um the ownership group, I guess, is traveling to Jeff City or wherever he's at to meet with him, I guess, to um, get a better context of where he's at and hopefully uh, vice versa. And the only other thing I would say that Garrett did not touch on is um, that it's my understanding and my belief that I think, and this is just my opinion, Mm -hmm. that even if the vote does not pass, I still think we'll see Major League Soccer in St. Louis. Um, I think the ownership group would obviously love to have some public funding, but I think we're this close and that if it, if it does not pass, I think they will find a way. It's just the, the difference is so small. I say small, it's like $80 million, but small <laughs> in the terms of uh, pro- professional sports that I think between the MLS and the ownership group, they will find a way to make this work. I know there was a group called the Foundry, which I'm not sure who they are, mm-hmm. that offered to pay um, which I know that got a lot of attention, but I'm pretty sure they wanted something in return. So I'm not sure how that all is going to play out, but I think they will find a way to get it done. So besides the funding issue, I mean, there's a lot of excitement that's being generated about the idea of having the MLS in St. Louis, but are there any other obstacles that it's facing bringing that here? The funding really is a big issue, but there are other obstacles. For instance, it's going to cost around $150 million just to purchase the franchise. Wow. Uh, you know, you can't just join Major League Soccer uh, just saying that you, you want to join it, you want to have a Major League Soccer team, there's a process to it. And part of that process is, is, is paying a very, very high fee. Uh, so that is certainly an obstacle, and there are only so many franchises to be awarded. Um, it certainly seems like that St. Louis is a front runner at this point to, to get a franchise, uh, but at the end of the day, you know, they have to be awarded one, and they have to come up with that $150 million as, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so here in St. Louis, hopefully we're getting a soccer team sometime soon, and we also have hockey and baseball. And, of course, the Cardinals are a big deal here in St. Louis. And within Major League Baseball, there's this new collective bargaining agreement. So can you talk about what this is and what it might mean for our, our home team? Yes, yeah, so, so collective bargaining is an issue that um, – is not solely a sports law issue, but it is a big sports law issue. So what collective bargaining is, it's, it's when a unionized group of workers works with the, the, the ownership group uh, to hammer out an agreement that's going to cover the scope of, of the employment for, for that, that unionized group, basically. And so almost every professional um, baseball, almost every group of professional base, professional athletes is, is unionized, one exception being uh, minor league baseball players. Maybe you go there. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we recently had a new collective bargaining agreement in baseball, and it extends the relative labor piece that's been in the sport uh, for a number of years now. Um, and what I think one of the more interesting things for me are the changes to the international signees. Uh, so around Around 30-35% of Major League Baseball players uh, are Latino now. Um, in the minor leagues, it's over 40%. Uh, 
A lot of them come from the Dominican Republic, from Venezuela, and they're signed as young as they're 16. Wow. Um, there was a real push by owners to subject them to a draft, uh, meaning that they wouldn't be able to sign with whatever team they wanted to. They'd be limited to only one team. Uh, the players' union resisted that movement, but in trade-off, there is now a set amount that each major league team can spend on international signees. Now, how that affects the Cardinals is they've been very active in recent years um, in trying to uh, to really sign the best uh, Dominican and Venezuelan players that they can, like like every major league team uh, does. And uh, the competition is probably going to be a little more difficult now because they're all uh, constrained to the same amount of money that they can spend now. Uh, so, you know, we'll see how that plays out. You know, they've had success with guys like Carlos Martinez. Um, of course, Oscar Tavares was probably their, their best prospect that uh, uh, came from the Dominican Republic in recent years. And, and uh, you know, he died in a tragic accident. But we'll, we'll see where, where it ends, how, how it really affects their, their efforts in the Dominican Republic. And I think, too, the new collective bargaining agreement, um, to the baseball insider, obviously there's big changes in regard to, well, not big changes, the status quo as far as international signees minus the, the, the amount they can spend. But there were big changes in our industry with the new collective bargaining agreement. But to the casual baseball fan as yourself and you, how it's going to relate to your hometown team, the Cardinals, I don't know that a casual fan would really see any impact at all. Like the game will continue. The main thing that you should take away is the game will continue as normal for the next five years. And hopefully, you know, obviously beyond that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say for the most part, it's an endorsement of the status quo is, is what the, the new collective bargaining agreement is. Okay. So the next big sports event that's coming up for everybody is the Super Bowl. So do you guys have any predictions on what's going to happen with that? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Put me on the spot here. I'll let Nick start with this one. Uh, I, I'm sad to say that I haven't watched a whole football game all year. Being a baseball agent, um, baseball is my thing. I'm really excited about the MLS with soccer. I mean, I know what's going on in football. I know who's good, who's bad. But, um, I mean, I'll give you a generic answer of, like, the Patriots versus the Cowboys <laughs> just because I know so, they're both It's a good. pretty good pick, yeah. yeah. I think that's a good pick. I'll go with that, too. Why not? Okay. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us today. It's been really exciting to hear about sort of another layer of law that we don't always think about and what's going on in sports law. So thanks again for being here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you for joining us for SLU Law Summations. Produced by St. Louis University School of Law.